Our scripture reading this evening will be from Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, as we consider Belgic Confession, Article 26. I really wanted to read chapter 4 as well, but uh, given how long Article 26 is, it would be better that we don't read two chapters. Uh, but as you're turning there, it's relevant to say that these, these two chapters go hand in hand. Uh, John has come before the heavenly court, uh, and the events that he is describing in chapter 4 and 5 are the events that directly, uh, directly succeed, they come directly after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And what it describes in chapter 4 is the whole heavenly hosts coming and gathering in, into the courtroom of God and praising the divine majesty of God seated on the throne and crying out together, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. They are giving praise to God. And then we come to chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw the lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, indeed we come before you this evening uh, to consider how Christ is our high priest who brings our prayers, even this one, uh, to your divine majesty that is seated next to him at the throne. And we trust and we, we confess, Father, that you hear our prayers in the name and for the sake of Christ, and we ask your blessing on this time. Even now, Father, we look forward to the day when we will, with our own eyes, uh, be in that heavenly courtroom to see and to gaze upon your beauty. In the meantime, Father, we ask now that this word would comfort us, encourage us, and lead us to Christ as our sure hope and comfort. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you'll notice that the ink on the page before you for Article 26 is dark. You'll also notice that it is very, very long, and it would take us about eight minutes to read it congregationally. So I am going to read it this evening, and we will not read it together. But uh, bear with me, even though it's long. Just to make sure, I'm going to read it. We're not going to do it congregationally this evening, okay? Article 26. We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ the righteous. He therefore was made man, uniting together the divine and human natures so that, so that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty. Otherwise, we would have no access. But this mediator, whom the Father has appointed between himself and us, ought not terrify us by his greatness, so that, we have to, so that we have to look for another, according to our fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us. And he, was, and he made himself completely like his brothers. Suppose we had to find another intercessor. Who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies? And suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power. Who has as much of these as he who is seated at the right hand of the Father? And who has all power in heaven and on earth? And who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son? So then, sheer unbelief has led to the practice of dishonoring the saints instead of honoring them. That was something the saints never did nor asked for, but which, in keeping with their duty, as appears from their writings, they consistently refused. We should not plead here that we are unworthy, for it is not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Since the apostle for good reason wants to get rid of this foolish fear, or rather this unbelief, he says to us that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in all things, that he might be a high priest who is merciful and faithful to purify the sins of the people. For since he suffered being tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. And further, to encourage us more to approach him, he says, since we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has entered into heaven, we maintain our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, unable to have compassion on our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in all things, just as we are, except for sin. Let us go then with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in order to be helped. The same apostle says that we have liberty to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Let us go then in the assurance of faith. Likewise, Christ's priesthood is forever. By this, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, who always lives to intercede for them. What more do we need? For Christ himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my Father but by me. Why should we seek another intercessor? Since it has pleased God to give us his Son as our intercessor, let us not leave him for another, or rather seek without ever finding. For when God gave him to us, he knew well that we were sinners. Therefore, in the following command of Christ, we call on the Heavenly Father through Christ, our only mediator, as we are taught by the Lord's Prayer, being assured that we shall obtain all that we ask 
of the Father in his name. Okay, this is very long. There is a lot going on here. And I told Reverend Smith earlier this week, you could preach 10 sermons on this one article. Uh, But we can also, at the same time, summarize it very simply. And you'll find that summary in the introductory statement. We have great hope, comfort, great hope, courage, and comfort because we have access to God through Jesus. We'll discover how we have access to God in three ways this evening. His purpose, His greatness, and His sufficiency. So first, His purpose. Jesus' purpose as intercessor is to give sinners estranged from God access to His divine majesty. The reality is that we have no communion with God as sinners. We see this from the very beginning in the story of the Bible, that Adam is, for his sin, ejected from the garden. And it is at that moment, uh, and this ejection, uh, this ejection is symbolic, that at that moment there is a breach in the relationship between God and man. We have a complete inability to reach God, to be with God, to commune with God. Belgic says, we have no access to God except through Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the only remedy to this chasm, to this, uh, this breach in the relationship that was created from the moment that man fell into sin. Now Jesus, letter A, Jesus is depicted in the New Testament as a figure who stands between man and God, both restoring and praying for his people. In John's gospel, we see this in a number of places. In John chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus says that if you know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, what Jesus is doing as he is sweeping up all people into himself is restoring the relationship between God and man. He is mediating that relationship and bringing two parties that were formerly divorced together. We also see in John chapter 17, verse 9, that Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given to me. So it is not just that Jesus is restoring this relationship as this mediator, as this person who is bringing two, two parties separated together. He is also praying for his people. He is actively petitioning to his Father on your behalf. And that's exactly what intercession is. It is to act or intervene on behalf of another. And Jesus' actions on earth restore our relationship with the Father. They bring us back. They bring us close to Him. And we see this is what He is doing already before He goes up into the heavenly court. He's seen praying. He's seen acting for us. Everything that He does from the moment of His departure and a departure from pre-incarnate glory to taking on flesh every moment of His life is for us. To serve as this mediator who brings us together to the Father. Now Hebrews, the book of Hebrews of which article 26 quotes from extensively, also teaches that the sacrificial work that Christ accomplished in his advent, in his time on earth, is what qualifies him for the role that he now has in heaven. 
There's something new. There's something unique about the fact that Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, typically within theology, what we try to do is, is we create distinctions that help us understand the work of Christ. And so we have three offices, prophet, priest, and king. But these are not divorced from each other as though they have no relation. When Jesus ascended into heaven, in that scene that we read from in Revelation chapter 5, he didn't just ascend and take a seat as king. He ascended and took a seat also as the great high priest. And there he is now interceding between us and God. And as a result, Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This is, of course, because he gave this priestly offering. And because of the nature of this priestly offering, because of who he was, there is an eternality to this office. Uh, This office that he has as priest continues on forever. He forever serves as a bridge between God and us, bringing us close to God, bringing our own words to God, and praying for us to the Father. Hebrews 9.24 says, He entered not into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. And it has three little words after that. He goes into the presence of God on our behalf. He is there at the right hand of the Father on our behalf. Letter B. The Old Testament very clearly indicates the need for a mediator and the office of priest pointed forward to Jesus' role as intercessor. In the early days of the covenant, there was no allowance for a personal relationship with God and individuals. This was not just because God was restri- uh, this was not just because God restricted them because of their sin and because they weren't able to approach in light of that, but also because the people themselves recognized the, the holy terror and majesty of God's presence. They themselves did not want to approach God themselves. We see this in Exodus chapter 20, following the giving of the law. It says there, Now all of the people witnessed the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, Speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. As the covenant continues to develop through the, the, the Old Testament, as God continues to give them stipulations, he institutes for Israel the office of the priest. We see what this mediatorial or priestly or intercessory office is, or what the nature of this office is by its functions. That is to say, what, what, what the priests are doing or what the priests are for is indicated by what they do. Okay, so the priests offer sacrifices. They deal with the people's sin so that the relationship between God and man is maintained so that the people can approach so that God stays in the temple and dwells with them. They pray for the people. They enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. They are the ones that come near to offer the sacrifice, to deal with the people's sin. Even where they stand, when the, when, the, when the old covenant people would gather together for life, cultic life in the temple, the, the, the priests would stand between the altar and the people. 
symbolizing that they were mediating or serving as intercessors in this relationship, bringing the people, representing the people to God and God to the people. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 27, we see that priests and Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. They are blessing the people. They are praying to, praying to God for the people, and their, their prayer is going up to the, the court of God. We also saw when we went through Joel how the priest would stand between the porch and the altar and say, spare your people, let them not be put to shame. Why should the nation say, where is their God? So in some, priests serve to reconcile, maintain, and pray for God's people on behalf of the people because they recognized that they were sinners who could not stand before God or maintain the right relationship with God and His terrible majesty. And this makes something clear, actually. The mere existence of the office of the priest implies and demonstrates that sinners cannot stand before God's holy majesty. That this, this, this office needs to be created so that these two parties can be reconciled, so that these two parties can, can, be, uh, can approach one another. Let her see. We have comfort going through him because the Father knew us to be sinners when he gave him to us. Now the whole priestly office in the Old Covenant, just like all the types and shadows, were not arbitrary things. They were created for one purpose, and that was to foreshadow and give us a context through which we could understand the work of Christ. They all pointed forward to Christ. This whole office is about him. Now there's a question that needs answering when we consider this. How is it that we can deign, how is it that we can dare to come before and call on the holy God? How can, even more specifically, how can we deign, how can we dare to call on God through Jesus when we consider who Jesus is and what he's done? He's in glory, as Revelation 5 indicates. He's in glorious majesty. He's in heaven. He's in perfect righteousness and power and splendor, how can we dare call on Him or call on God through Him? The Belgian Confession answers, because He was given by the Father to be our mediator even when He knew us to be sinners. The greatest proof that we should go to Him, the greatest proof that we can call on Him, the greatest proof that we do not need another mediator and the greatest proof that he is gentle and lowly is the incarnation. The incarnation and the crucifixion. And the Belgic Confession argues this way as well. No matter how sinful I am, I know, I know that he loves me and he is my mediator despite my grossness. And I know this because the prerequisite for mediation, the prerequisite for mediation is my sin. I don't need a mediator if I'm not a sinner. And the mere fact that Jesus comes down, he takes the form of a servant, he humbled himself, and he took on flesh, indicates to us that he was willing, that the depth of his love and the reality that God gives us 
Him as our mediator, knowing us to be sinners. Number two, His greatness. There is, quite simply speaking, no greater mediator that we could ask for. Article 26 spends a large portion of time discussing this point and really kind of painting, if you will, the, a picture of the glory and the goodness of Christ's office as our high priest. And it does this by, uh, in a particular way, by, by way of contrast. It contrasts Jesus as a mediator to the supposed other mediators and asks questions like, what other mediator could we want? And the conclusion that it reaches is we, we, we can't have another mediator. No, no other mediator is better. The conclusion that it reaches is letter A. That no other person has either the resume or the location to surpass Christ's greatness as our mediator. Now think about it. Revelation 5 is showing us exactly where Christ is seated. It's showing us exactly what his resume is. It's showing us his CV, his accolades, all that he's done. It's, 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 it's drawing our eyes to his glory. Who has such prestige and power as him? The confession asks. Look at all the hosts of heaven gathering together and confessing his glory. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll. But behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered and he is able to open the scroll. And what does he do? He goes to the divine majesty sitting on the throne. He takes the scroll. And this is, by the way, the same divine majesty, the same one seated in chapter 14 that all the hosts of heaven had formerly praised. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He goes and he takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne. And as he does so, the host of heaven saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And then in verse 13, all of creation is pictured as praising both the Lamb and the glorious one that's seated on the throne. And I heard the voice of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and might forever. Our article 26 connects to this reality. It connects to the reality that this lamb is the one seated in the heavenly host receiving this glory. And our confession asks, who is seated at the right hand of the Father and has all power in heaven and on earth? That's a rhetorical question. Nobody. Nobody does. There is quite simply no greater mediator that we can ask for. No other person has either the resume or the location that Christ has. Now letter B, the prophet Zechariah tells of the way that the coming mediator would accomplish all that was lacking in former mediators. 
There's a couple verses from chapter 4. Zechariah says in this vision that he's having, much like the vision that John is having, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on its left. These seven, that is the lampstands, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range the whole earth. And concerning the olive trees, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. You'll notice, by the way, there's a repetition of themes from Zechariah 4 and Revelation 5. Here, Zechariah is talking about the menorah, the lamps that were lit, that symbolized and signified to the people God's presence with the people. And the, what the people would do is they would go out and they would buy oil so that, there was, uh, so that the lamps would stay lit and the priests would maintain this oil. So there was great concern, since it represented God's presence with the people, that these lamps stayed lit. And the picture that Zechariah is painting is that there are two olive trees that have something like spouts going into the lampstands that perpetually provide the oil required for God's presence to be maintained amongst the people. Now Zechariah says that these two olive trees are the anointed ones who stand by the Lord. That is, what Isaiah or what Zechariah is looking at is the heavenly court of God. And these two figures are representative of two offices. Priest, king. So according to Zechariah, Christ is there seated by the Lord in the heavenly court, maintaining the blessing uh, maintaining the relationship between God and His people, maintaining the blessing that the, the people have as a result of God's presence, maintaining this harmonious relationship between God and His people. Zechariah is prophesying of the greatness of Jesus' office as that mediator who would not fail to keep God's presence with the people as they had experienced formerly. So let her see. This means that everything I would ever need, my mediator supplies. Anything you bring to God through him, he bears to the Father perfectly as the petitioner on your behalf. He bears it perfectly. Something we need to realize is that, especially made clear by the fact that he is already praying for us on earth, he is constantly praying, working, and advocating for us and for our needs. He is constantly interceding and petitioning on our behalf to the Father. And he is constantly bringing our prayers up to the Father that they might be heard and answered. Anything you and I would ever need from a mediator, he gives in abundance. From the magnitude and from the glory of his own office. I love this point that the, the, the Belgic makes. If this glorious son who sits at the right hand is the one who presents our prayers to God, what confidence can we lack? None. And the reality, that reality is made all the more clear in the context of his work on earth, which the Belgic Confession is arguing from. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. 
and he made himself completely like his brothers. It's speaking about his, his work on earth as, as a sufferer, as a corporate figure, as our federal head who accomplished our salvation uh, by offering his own perfect sacrifice. Now, according to Hebrews, Jesus' earthly ministry and and advent, his time on earth is the very thing that qualifies him to be this high priest, this eternal priest, because he does what priests do. He offers a perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice of himself. And in so doing, he restores for all eternity the relationship between God and his people. He is the perpetual and eternal great high priest. And he does this because he loves us. So therefore, this glorious one that's seated on the throne and is worthy to to open the scrolls loves us more than any other creature can. Here it says, For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Can we think on that for a moment? In the midst of your everyday troubles, in the midst of your everyday anguish, in the midst of your everyday sorrow, and your overwhelm, the, the overwhelming nature of life, your, your, your feelings of being burned out, your feelings of, of strife and toil against the cursed ground that we all work and, and walk upon, in the midst of all of that, the creator of all the universe, hears your words because they are brought to him through Jesus Christ. What more could we need than to know this? And something that's relevant too to his office as a priest in maintaining that relationship is what Zechariah and Revelation pick up on. They're using uh, um, prophetic imagery to refer to the giving of the Spirit. In verse 6, it's, it, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is the Spirit of Christ that he sends out to be God's presence with us. And he is God's own son who is seated at his right hand. Who else can be heard besides him? Who else is more likely to be heard and a more, a more likely candidate to bear our anxieties, our troubles, our sorrows, and our thanksgiving to God than God's own Son who obeyed every word that came from His mouth and who is now seated right next to Him in the heavenly court. And finally, if we were to think of it in terms of a courtroom, who would better litigate on your behalf? Who would be a better lawyer on your behalf than the one who who is majestic in splendor and in might and in glory, the Lord of glory, the very word 
that governs the universe and created the universe. Who could better petition and, and, and advocate for you before the Father? I'd have no lawyer but him. There is quite simply no greater mediator that we can hope for. Number three, his sufficiency. The security and warrant for this relationship depend not on us but on him. He is the sufficient ground. Or rather we should say he is sufficient to ground and establish the security and relationship we have with God. I don't go to God in prayer because I think that I'm worthy or because I think that I'm righteous or because I think that I have the right words or because my words are eloquent enough or I've prayed every prayer that I need to pray or because I've read my Bible enough that week and I know that God will hear my cries. I go to God because I am a weak, undeserving sinner who goes to him through Jesus Christ who is the worthy one Letter A, what qualifies him to make us worthy is the sacrifice he made as a man to purify his people. And notice the logic of the confession here. It moves from the righteousness of Christ, which is ours by faith, to the grounds of that righteousness, his high priestly work in the flesh. And it, quoting Hebrews, says that we have liberty to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. It is his blood that warrants our entrance. And this priestly work for us as a man that he accomplished shows us two things. First of all, that all of his work that he accomplished is what qualifies him to be this kind of high priest for us and to advocate on our behalf and to be completely sufficient on all, in all things in this regard, to provide everything that, it, that we would need as a, of a mediator. Number two, it convinces us that he is gentle and lowly convinces us that he is gentle, lowly, and compassionate and understands our struggle. Why? Because he was like us in every way. He struggled. He was tempted just like us in every way except without sin. And this is a notable difference, by the way. You and I are tempted as people who over and over and over again throughout the course of our lives give in to our sin. And what you'll notice in your battle to reject the weakness of the flesh and live and walk by the Spirit and reject temptations, you'll notice that it is much more difficult. It is toilsome. It is a gruesome fight to run from sin and temptation, whatever it may be. It's much easier to give in to it. Jesus struggled like us in every way. He was tempted like us in every way. And yet he never sinned. He never gave in. So he understands that battle and that struggle in a way that far, far exceeds what you and I understand. What qualifies him to make us worthy is the sacrifice he made as a man to purify his people. Therefore, I do not offer my prayers to God by my own dignity, but by his worth and the sufficiency of his office. Letter B, in the Old Testament, even the most unworthy and shameful have the freedom to call on God in confidence. This is made especially clear in the prayer of Hannah as she goes before God in chapter 1 of Samuel. 
1 Samuel. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring my soul out before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I, all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. The irony here is that in typical Hebrew and ancient Near East fashion, she is a worthless woman. Now, it is not actually true, but in the minds of the ancients, in the minds of people living in the kingdom of God, in this, in this, um, in this holy land, perfect obedience or obedience to God's law was, was heavily associated to fruitfulness of the womb. So for Hannah to be barren would indicate to other people that she, had sh- that she was shameful, that she was not right with the Lord. And it would also bring great shame to her husband. So here is this woman who by all standards believes herself to be shameful, worthless. And God hears and answers her petitions. In the Old Testament, even the most unworthy and shameful have the freedom to call on God in confidence. And let her see Therefore I know without a shadow without a, therefore I know without doubt that God always hears my prayers through my intercessor. No matter how heinous I think myself to be, God always hears my cries. And there's an irony to this. If I'm honest with myself, I am far more heinous than I think myself to be. And not only do I know that I'm more heinous, God knows that I am heinous to him in infinite measure because my sin against him is infinite in measure. Not only that, I don't know know all the sin I commit. He has only revealed to me a fraction of it. But in Christ, what a marvelous truth. In Christ, he gives weak, weary, broken sinners the freedom to call on his name and to be heard. Because he is the sufficient one, I can be assured that whatever I ask in the name of Jesus, God will not only hear, but he will grant. The confession says, I shall obtain. So maybe you doubt he hears you. Maybe you think that there's some reason that would warrant him not granting your request, some sin in your life you're struggling with, something you've done recently that... that would be blasphemous to call on the name of the Lord right now. This article, as it surveys scriptures, convinces you to the contrary. He presents in his own worthiness your own words to the Father as his own words. And he does it in the greatness of his office as the one sitting at the Father's right hand. And we'll close with this, a question for you. What other religion permits the unqualified, the disgraceful, the distasteful, the heinous to call on the deity and not only be heard and have his audience, but be answered? In most other religions, it's something that you have to buy, something that you have to sacrifice for, something that you have to maintain by your own obedience. It's free for us because we come to him by the blood of Christ. 
some people manifest. And they expect that somehow, some way, the universe will return to them what they're demanding. How can you trust that? One of my classmates in seminary told a story in one of his sermons once. Uh, he was a Chinese student, and he remembered distinctly uh, an occasion where a, a beggar was trying to go up the mountain to the temple, and the gatekeeper said no. There is nothing that God desires more than that the beggars, the lowly, the afflicted, the heinous, the distasteful would come to him even in their own sin like David in Psalm 51 and call on him as father. And we can be confident that when we come to him through Jesus, we will obtain whatever we ask in his name. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this evening and we thank you that we can call on you as our Father and that you hear our prayers. What a wonderful truth it is that you hear us, that you love us, that you answer us, and that we are not alone and that we do not have to do this alone. Help us this week, Father, for this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.